0: Hello, and welcome to an EG Property Podcast from MIPIM 2023. This session is covering the Invest City Focus Group from Scotland to Manchester. And chairing the panel is Pui Guan Man. And joining her on the panel is Stephen Boyd, Chief Executive of Government Property Agency. Michael Hawkins, Director and Head of National Office Agency and Development UK Regions Colliers. Barry McCohen partner and head of Glasgow office, Shoesmiths. Welcome everyone. We know that for UK cities to be engines of growth, opportunity and prosperity, it can't just be business as usual anymore. Cities and organisations need to equip and unlock the enormous potential of their people, culture, places and spaces. And the built environment has a massive part to play in that. So. With us this morning are representatives from three key organisations and cities who will set out their visions for those cities' futures and how public and private sectors can work together to shape them. After the presentations, we will have a Q&A where you'll have the chance to ask our speakers some questions. So first up, we have Stephen Boyd, Chief Executive of the Government Property Agency. Stephen, I'll hand over to you.
1: Good morning, everyone. Um, Bit of an introduction about the GPA, I think. Standing closer to the microphones, thank you for the signals from the back. Um, a little bit of an introduction to the GPA, and then some examples of the work that we're doing in various parts of the UK, and hopefully that will identify how we're working with the local authorities, with private sector to deliver uh, to produce better solutions in places. Uh, it may be that not many of you have heard of the GPA, um, so let me do a little bit of an intro. Uh, So we're about delivering for the central government office portfolio, transformed, shared, not each department having their own little bit and arguing between each other, transformed, shared, sustainable and value for money estate. And our estate is already reasonably large. We look after 900,000 square metres and we expect that to grow towards above 2 million square metres and working with a whole range of government bodies to achieve that in all parts of the United Kingdom. Uh, so we are a occupier, and most people think of us like that, so the government occupying private sector space, and a lot of our buildings are leased spaces. Uh, but we're also an owner and we also provide services into those spaces and we also run one of the largest commercial office programs in the UK. and we're working everywhere across the United Kingdom. Uh, a whole range of projects at different stages of their life cycle. Some are refurb of existing, some are new build, but all are about providing better facilities for the civil service and the wider public sector in every part of the UK. Not some island uh, independent in in those locations, but something that's an integrated part of the city that can work as part of the wider cityscape and the built environment. Uh, and, of course, we're doing that from, the, from a range of perspectives. So the last discussion, for those of you who were here, we heard about making sure that buildings were designed from an inclusivity point of view. And I can't resist talking about the standard that was mentioned at the end. So there is a standard uh, for inclusive design, and we worked uh, very closely with the um, UK Construction Industry Council to produce that standard, and uh, uh, we make sure that our, all of our buildings are delivered to that high standard we're also, of course, like everyone else, dealing with sustainability challenge. and We make sure our new bills are a very high standard, we work to BRIAM and also neighbours, but also make sure that the existing inherited uh, civil service estate, which you might imagine in some places is not as good as we would all like, that that's invested in to bring it up to the right standard. We can't do that by ourselves. Uh, In fact, uh, we're intentionally quite small. Uh, so we work in partnership with local authorities to make sure that the solutions we deliver fit in that place. But we also work in partnership with others in order to deliver. And clearly that's developers and funders, but it's also um, uh, we have major strategic partners. So we have a property partner, which is BNP Paribas. Uh, we have uh, partners in our design and construction, Atkins and Acom, And we also work with Jones Lang in workplace to make sure our solutions take the best practice from across the UK and the wider, uh, and wider world, to be honest, we're not looking at a standalone public sector solution. We're looking at providing best practice. Full stop. So, how does that turn out in places? So, let me give you a few examples of things that we've done recently. So, uh, this is our new building in Peterborough. Uh, it replaces, I think, four or five existing buildings that were, in, that were in the city that were uh, not necessarily of a great standard it brings together four government departments in a shared, uh, really high quality building that's excellently digitally connected, designed with inclusive design at the heart of it and in fact was opened uh, by our Minister on Monday this week. Uh, whilst Peterborough House is a new build, uh, our building in Stevenson Street in Birmingham as a refurb. Actually, this was the Woolies in uh, in central Birmingham, and that has been completely uh, repurposed. Now it's home for for nearly 2,000 civil servants from 20 different departments, and just recently uh, was awarded Leasman Plus certification, which puts it in the top 3% of uh, corporate office spaces worldwide, and only two uh, are public sector offices that ever achieved that certification in the UK. Uh, So by uh, delivering these kind of buildings in different places across the UK we can both help the levelling up agenda by moving civil servants to the regions and the countries of the UK um, and we can also reduce the number of civil servants in London. So effectively we run two sister programmes, the Whitehall Campus programme which is about right-sizing the Whitehall Campus and that is about making it smaller than it was before and then uh, expanding and improving the quality of our state across the regions to make sure that it can accept those extra roles, those new jobs moving into cities across the UK. So a couple more examples. Here's the Darlington Economic Campus, which you might have heard of. So this is moving half of the Treasury from, uh, from central London up to Darlington, already in a temporary building in, in Fletham's house, which is a speculative build, which was standing empty, which we've been able to fit out to an extremely high standard to allow the Treasury to begin to grow and recruit in the northeast, uh, and a permanent solution to follow beyond that on a much bigger scale. Uh, we also deliver things for the government that are perhaps not what you might expect. So, or at early stages of a, uh, a major new build in collaboration with Reading University to provide the European Long Range Weather Forecasting Centre. This is a competition. It's not an EU facility. But this is a competition across Europe, uh, which our designs uh, won and therefore, we'll be looking to build this out to a very high environmental standard in the next period. So working with all parts of the UK, collaborating with the private sector, collaborating with local authorities, setting very high standards for inclusivity, very high standards for, um, for sustainability, and not, as I think someone mentioned earlier on in an earlier discussion this morning, in the public sector always looking for the cheapest. We don't do that, we're looking for the best, Uh, And uh, that helps us to deliver on levelling up, on net zero and also almost by the back door supporting civil service reform, helping civil servants from multiple different departments to work together. But as we'll hear from my colleagues, hint you're next up, as we'll hear from my colleagues that can't be something that we can do by ourselves. That has to be done in conjunction with uh, local authorities and other partners on a regional basis.
0: Marvellous. Thank you very much, Stephen. Um, up next, we have Barry McEwen, partner and head of the Glasgow office at Shoesmiths to talk about all things Scotland. So over to you, Barry.
2: Good morning, everyone. Don't know if I can get my machine to work. Hold on a second. Here we go. Hi, I'm Barry McEwen. I'm real estate partner at Shoesmiths and head of the Glasgow office, which I opened for Shoesmiths four years ago. So I'm here today to talk about all things Scotland. You may notice there is a, a specific focus on Glasgow and Edinburgh, but there are other cities in Scotland. They've <laughs> basically not got a lot of mentions in this current talk. <laughs> so so first of all, maybe maybe it's the, the sunshine in France and the sun and maybe the rosy, but may have gone to my head, but I think there are sound reasons why we should be optimistic for Scotland's future in the real estate sector. So I'm gonna talk about some various sectors, first of all, and some of the challenges that we face in terms of 2023. But looking back, first of all, I think you'll all agree that 2022 was a tumultuous year. Despite an encouraging start, investment activity across Scotland reached a four year high in the half year to July 2022. It was clear by Q3 that Scotland's property sector was being impacted by the likes of spiraling inflation soaring energy costs, and increased interest rates. But in the midst of that, there was some real positivity and some positive highlights from 2022 that I want to talk about. First of all, looking at offices. One Haymarket Square in Edinburgh, the 350 million first new grade A office building in the capital for a number of years, achieved practical completion, and is fully let. Developed by the Quartermile Group, Shoesmiths is one of the first tenants to be moving in, and our fit-out should be completed next month in what is a spectacular new addition to the Edinburgh landscape, part of a larger office mixed-use development with a number of retail opportunities, leisure, etc. Again, sustainability high in the agenda in terms of the new office requirement. Across the M8, HFD Group sold their flagship 315,000 square foot office development at 177 Bothwell Street in Glasgow for $215 million to Spanish investors. Surely a sign in both of these that Scotland's office sector isn't going away. But what about retail? Can the sector and our city centres in particular recover from the short waves of the pandemic? On Edinburgh's Princes Street, the Johnny Walker experience achieved 300,000 visitors in its first year and may be an exemplar of the new wave of experience-led retail coming to our cities. Indeed, Shoesmith's client Lush, the cosmetic retailer, has also recently signed a new 15 year lease in the midst of Glasgow's Golden-Style Mile and promises an immersive retail and spy experience over 25,000 square feet. That is a lot of bath bombs. At the other end of the market, Poundland have taken 18,000 square feet out of Glasgow's retail parks for their largest store in Scotland, showing growth in the value end of the market and the out-of-town destinations. Well, the sheds market has been buoyant throughout COVID, the logistics sector may experience challenges if the economic pressures and household spending remain, constraining demand for online sales. Although there is evidence of levelling out in the construction costs around the market, this may impact and spec development in the big shed sector. In that case, pre-lets may be the only option. Notably, TriTax is currently developing a huge 500,000 square foot storage and distribution shed at the moment in Glasgow shown here, pre-led to Glasgow-based publisher Harper Collins, who are relocating within the city for, from an old established printing and distribution works. The family-owned Russell Group saw its proposed $200 Ravenscraig Rail Freight Hub project refused planning consent by the local authority, but it's anticipated that they will appeal to the Scottish ministers. But the project itself was a clear sign of continued commitment to invest in Scottish infrastructure, and real logistics sector. The built to sector continues apace in Scotland with strong development investment figures across the nation. Development shown here is Platform Glasgow, which will deliver 498 new rental apartments in the heart of the city and should complete in October this year. It follows completion last year of the drum BTR scheme next to the new Barclays Wealth Campus on the opposite side of the River Clyde. In total, there are several thousand new-build multi-family BTR units being developed in both Glasgow and Edinburgh at the moment. It's a sure sign of confidence in that sector. Notably, Smith's client Sigma Capital also marked their first foray into the Scottish market with their single-family housing BTR platform at Bertha Park in Perth, which is being delivered for them by the house builder Springfield. We're currently working on a number of other projects for them, expanding their... Single family housing model north of the border for the first time. What about other sectors? Green Freeports. For the six bids submitted, the Freeport at Cromarty Firth and the, and the Fourth were the winners out of the six. The ports are designed to encourage and promote regeneration and job creation as new hubs for global trade and investment, while also promoting decarbonisation and the transition to net zero, which is obviously one of the Scottish Government's goals and should bring in large investment with various tax incentives on offer for the businesses which are located there. We obviously can't talk about Scotland without talking about renewables, which continues to be a huge investment pool for the nation, be that onshore or offshore wind, and, believe it or not, solar projects as well. So, we have reasons to be positive last year, but what does the future hold for Scotland's real estate sector? The economic data coming out at the moment is sobering reading across the UK, but in Scotland we are also contending with a leadership election for a new First Minister following Nicola Sturgeon's resignation and the political instability that will bring. We continue to be in the middle of an ongoing independence debate which doesn't seem to want to go away, even as certain parts of the population would wish it did. But few commentators, I think, can agree. In terms of the position of spe- sector-specific growth in Scotland, and said remain, remain a go- good long-term prospect for growth across the UK and I think in Scotland should remain resilient throughout 2023. Certainly the BTR sectors appears to be in good health despite the Scottish Government's controversial intervention with the Cost of Living Tenant Protection Scotland Act or rent freeze it was coined which impacted on several investment projects that we specifically were working on, but now seems to have settled down and those are kicking back off again. Equally, purpose-built student accommodation remains buoyant. Post-COVID student numbers are up. International students are back at our universities, whilst supply continues to be constrained across all Scotland's major university towns and cities. Indeed, Shoesmith's team are working on a number of large projects across UK and particularly in Scotland for clients such as Watkins Jones and Robertson Group in the PBSA sector. The investment side of the living sector we think remains an interesting hedge against inflation as rent increases tend to balance out operational cost increases over a defined period. So if inflationary pressure continues into 2024, we expect to see more money flowing into the living sector from other more traditionally commercially focused investors. Therefore, while the coming months will present challenges, they're good reason for optimism. I believe opportunities will continue to arise for those in Scotland's property sector with the imagination and drive to thrive, and I'm looking forward to another interesting year. Thank you all.
0: Thanks very much, Barry. Now over to Michael Hawkins, Director and Head of National Office Agency and Development in, in the UK regions at Colliers uh, for a presentation on Manchester. So I'll hand over to you now. Thank
3: you. Yep, that's me. <laughs> well, thank you very much for inviting me to talk today. Um, and I'll try and press the right button. So Greater Manchester. Um, my adopted city. I was given 10 minutes to excite you all and get you to invest more in Manchester, so let's see what we can do. Everyone talks about Manchester and its success, but uh, its success has taken 35 years of relentless investment, um, collaboration, very strong leadership, great political stability, and a city that embraces anyone that visits it, and, and that is its key differentiating factor. There's a perception of Manchester that it always rains. Um, a little known fact, uh, playing on, the, on the, the wet rain theme, is that Manchester actually designed the first military submarine, which not many people know. But um, it doesn't rain actually that much, um, but it is a city of great resilience. And, and what we've seen over the years is that the people that do come and invest in Manchester, they invariably come for three or four days. They stay there, they see it wake, they see it party, they see it live and breathe. So don't just come, take a tour around with a a, a real estate advisor, actually experience the whole ethos and the culture that is Manchester, and that'll give you great comfort. There's a lot of perception that it's it's nothing more than football, but actually, and it's a bit political this, but the, the investment behind Manchester City Football Club has done more for urban regeneration in that micro environment than any other government or local uh, public authority investment strategy. And it's had a positive effect on people's communities and it's really brought the whole community together and it's generated employment. Some boring facts. But in summary, um, there are a lot of people in Manchester that want to work, enjoy working, and and I'll come on to a very significant um, statistic, and and that is the Manchester University has been producing an educated, talented workforce which has had the greatest impact on office relocations into Manchester. But it's not just about Manchester. The most significant, um, I think, characteristic of the post-COVID world in the United Kingdom is we've seen very significant UK corporations um, migrate to strong university cities and also companies coming from outside the country into the United Kingdom. So you can't ignore the, that inextricable link between the university and real estate and the, and the local authorities. Manchester has matured. I mean, it's responsible for 40% of um, the, the northern uh, GDP, Um, however, um, what what makes Manchester a city to invest in is the the respectful relationship between local authorities and and, and respectful private companies. And What I mean by that, um, the chemistry, unless you have an engaged local authority and a strong, stable leadership team, you can have lots of vision statements, but nothing will become reality. And what I would say about Manchester is it's very accessible. If you want to access the leadership team, they will see you within 24 hours. You don't have to wait six, eight, 12 weeks, and you don't have to pay to see them either. And that is, is a very, very strong component to the success of Manchester. Manchester is open. Open to all, and I, I, I'm not trying to name drop, but um, the relevance of, of of these real estate operators is, um, a, a, as Barry was stating about the, about Scotland, it's the fusion of skills bringing forward um, private rented sector, student accommodation, life science, um, conventional commercial office accommodation. The most significant thing about Manchester, and I think there was a seminal moment in the evolution of Manchester, was when the co-op group sold their investment because it attracted seven bids from five continents. So anyone can invest in a city, but can you exit out of the city? And, and that is the attraction that actually makes Manchester a, a stable, micro-districts of the United Kingdom that you can actually not just invest in isolation but you're investing among some very strong um, neighbours who have got a lot of wool on their back and are in in it for the long term. I made a joke at the beginning that overnight success has taken 35 years. The difference between Manchester and other cities from my experience and I have visibility across the UK is they're constantly striving to present other goals, objectives, and there are a raft of documents that you can access and um, and I can I can after this if anyone wants to make contact, I can lead you to docu- documents produced by Manchester City Council and Midas, and they are visioning doc- documents that have become reality and whilst the, the whole of the world is talking about carbon ESG and it's very laudable and everyone's talking about yeah, our, our objectives are, are, are 20 fifty. Manchester wants to, to achieve those objectives by twenty thirty eight, so it's always putting itself under pressure to achieve those objectives collectively, um, but but via collaboration. The future vision. These these are not often when you have a, an investment perspective. Um, they're sort of nice to have, but. The, the new arena next to Manchester City football um, uh, ground, um, 350 million capital expenditure, and it will be accommodating gaming competitions, um, tennis competitions, um, musical events, but it will be bigger than the O2. And that's a global attractor to bring people into the city and enjoy the city. The factory is this new, the new arts at Manchester uh, International um, Arts Festival every two years, it's now got a home. I can't stress the importance of the university and and the quality of the educated um, talents that's coming out. The biggest change I've seen in the whole of my career in the last two to three years are corporates are now reaching out to the vice chancellor and saying, can we help you, can we work with you to change the syllabus so it's actually more bespoke to the, to the, the, the educated workforce that are looking to come into Manchester and the companies that are looking to migrate and consolidate their hubs. In addition, and it's a boring statistic, everyone wishes on that Manchester was the first industrial city. You can't look back all the time; you've got to look forward. And the key key aspects now are what it's focused on in terms of its life science, and also we talk about the built built form, and, and we talk about dual dual mode um, designs, um, well-being, but. The other relevant thing that no one talks about is the digital accessibility in terms of dark fibre, because we're now the one thing that we all learn during lockdown is that we we had to commit to teams and we had to commit to commit to having conversations and meetings with people globally. And let you have unless you have the resilience of that fibre, it's going to come to a grinding halt. But Manchester, along with the stakeholders of which anyone can be part of, they have a vision to actually drive new businesses which will generate more employment. The journey is never-ending. Um, I'm very proud that Manchester um, invested in um, Mayfield, the first public park in Manchester for 100 years. It's taken 100 years, <laughs> hopefully they'll do another one, but uh, it's a very, I mean, Manchester has got a lot of characteristics like Glasgow, and it it's grid system, it's a very vibrant city. But I think the one thing that we all learned in, in, in lockdown was how much we craved open public space and safe space. And, and so Manchester, once again, is putting the building blocks for everyone to access and enjoy. The comment at the bottom, it's never ending. The job is never finished. It's 35 years, we've got another 25 years, and we'll pass the baton over to other more youthful people, even the ageist Michael Hawkins might still have a job, but we, we'll keep going. Um, and so what, what is Manchester about? You can invest in Manchester, You can see capital appreciation, but one of the key things is that um, to me, um, it is a city that inspires new thinking and it is a very collaborative city. But it's also a city that does enjoy a party. And they have a statement in Manchester tables in Manchester are to dance on, not to work on. Anyway, enjoy.
0: Great. Well, thank you very much, Michael. Actually, Michael, we're going to have to ask you to come back up on stage, (laughs) actually. If um, Barry and Stephen could also join us on stage, please, to take the hot seat and discuss some of these points in a bit more depth before uh, we uh, turn to the floor for some questions. Great. So I guess um, to start off with, I mean, when we look at how public and private sectors can come together to help draw investment into cities. I mean, we've seen a bit about the upsides uh, to how public and private sectors should collaborate, but there's actually quite a lot of complexities to, to partnerships, I suppose, um, in, in terms of how the risks can be managed that are inherent for you know, um, uh, PPP-backed schemes. Uh, and I wondered, maybe I'll throw this one to you, Stephen, um, how are those sort of risks, how can they be managed? You know, When I talk, talk about risks, I, I talk about things like sort of cost overruns, and, and delays and, and that sort of thing. So how, What is? what are your thoughts on that?
1: Um, I'm just checking that this is working. I'm not sure a little it bit closer to It that. is working, <laughs> okay. Um, uh, so as I mentioned in my um, little chat at the beginning, there's a balance between um, uh, a, a public sector and private sector approach to get the best for that location. And um, you know, there's always gonna be challenges on a project there'll always be things that you weren't expecting. Sometimes things run on, and things things are more expensive than you'd like. Part of that is about being very clear at the outset what exactly everybody wants, and fixing a clear end state for everybody to work to. And, and I'm a big advocate of everybody focusing on the experience in that location. Uh, and I think the, the UK property sector doesn't always focus on that. Um, Uh, It may be that the people responsible for the facilities management in the building are focused on the experience, but that's no good if the fit-out contractor and the base build contractor and the collaboration with the local authority about the place in which that building sits are not also focused on the experience. And I think that's one thing that's common across the board. And if everybody has that common vision, you can deal collectively with the risks as they come along.
0: Yeah, that's fair enough. And what are the biggest blockers getting in the way of, of sort of more big regeneration schemes being created in key cities? I'm um, not sure who'd want to pick that one up. Well, mayb- maybe Stephen, if you'd like to go again. <laughs> um,
1: uh, so, th- so there are problems with getting those kind of schemes off, off the ground. Um, there's, uh, clearly, you've got to think about how much things cost uh, and what the benefits are. And I think the benefits, the wider benefits, are sometimes difficult to, to quantify you know what's the benefit to not necessarily the pound shillings and pence benefit but what's the benefit in terms of spin off for the impact on people in that place what's the 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 what's the follow on investment that might come as a result of something that the public sector has funded um, so so that's a difficult thing i think there also are challenges that we continue to work on about uh, how the public sector can work together more effectively um, we say the public sector, what we actually mean is hundreds of different separate organisations. It's it's comparatively easy for any one of those public sector organisations to work with the private sector. It's actually quite difficult for public sector organisations to work with each other. And that's something that, uh, that needs to be improved and we're working on.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Um, uh, Michael, I was interested to sort of hear about the strong links in, in Manchester between uh, universities and, and real estate and local authorities and you know, all coming together to, um, to, to work together. I mean, in, in general, should higher education be more of a consideration for cities when it comes to developing regeneration schemes? And, uh, y- y- you know, are there any other asset types as well that aren't on the radar enough that could serve as, as similar linchpins?
3: I think... Um universities or further education um, is the strongest foundation stone to the success and sustainability yeah. of all cities. And I think that they're a lot more accessible now. They, they are inextricably linked to how a city is presented, um, how it attracts um, global talent. I mean, in, in Manchester, I, I came to Manchester in 88, and there were two accents, a Mancunian and a Salfordian. Now, now there's probably 30 to 35 acts, and why? Because there are, there are students coming from around the world, but they don't just come around the world and become educated, they actually commit to the city, and that's the same in, in other key cities, um, like Glasgow, Edinburgh. And I think that, that Britain should, should celebrate its ability to attract um, inquisitive students from around the world, but then, as, as was stated earlier, it's about curating the public space and the businesses for, for students to stay and contribute and add back into the city that they've adopted. But the universities are really, really important, yeah. Yeah, I yeah, see
0: um, Barry, you're nodding, nodding along there, so uh, great
2: to hear your thoughts as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um Glasgow and Edinburgh and other cities, St Andrews, for example, have real strong educational credentials around the world and attract top quality students. And, uh, and as Michael was saying there, they come, they're educated, but then they stay because actually, what they like is the environment that presents themselves and the opportunities that are there with international employers and a well-qualified workforce, and also a city that's friendly and fun to live in and with good quality accommodation. And I think Glasgow, I think, has, has suffered from regenerating earlier than a lot of other UK cities came out of the shipbuilding. So the 80s, 90s Glasgow was really buzzing, I think, in the last 20 years it feels that it's lost its way slightly. And a lot of that, I think, is the failure to engage properly between public and private sector. Some of that may be political. Some of that may just be clashes between national government, both Scotland and the UK, and then local government authorities. And I think there has... I was at a session a few weeks ago where the concept of, of metro mayors and what's happened in Manchester and the the... The power vacuum, which I think exists in Scottish cities at the moment, where there's a desire to do things but none of the power to actually implement any of it. And I think we can learn a lot of lessons from the kind of Northern powerhouse approach of looking at this in a big geographic sense, not just inner city, but what the lessons that we can learn from Manchester to grab onto that regeneration opportunity. Okay. Um,
3: what Barry's saying there. Um, so I, I, I Harold from Hull, and. Uh, was educated in Sheffield and adopted Manchester, but I now spend sixty percent of my time in London and I have visibility across the UK. And it's not all about Manchester, I think what Barry stated there. We we should all learn from each other and, and take take the good bits and, and, and not be shy in replicating those in other cities. And it's not about the Manchester way. They they've done some things wrong, they've done some things well, but we should all share and 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 I actually hate the expression leveling up. But we we need to help each other and we need to actually share our experiences and actually export those positive um, initiatives that have done well into other cities. It's no good one city becoming stronger and stronger and stronger. It needs to bring other cities along with them.
0: So what is the the sort of biggest blocker to sharing that knowledge? Like, you know, to... I think
3: that um, a lot of cities are partisan and inward looking and we should be outward looking. And I think if you look at the residents of the cities, they're so diverse now in Glasgow, Edinburgh, Sheffield, Lees, Bristol, Birmingham. And I think sometimes the leadership team needs to to take a strong look at the communities and actually celebrate them and and be more um, outward looking rather than uh, introverted and insular. Yeah. And I think that, uh, sadly, a lot of leadership teams are still quite um, siloed in their approach, and we need, we need to break those those barriers down. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Um, and I suppose a um, barrier, as you mentioned in your uh, presentation, we've seen uh, you know a few um, you know uh, regeneration schemes, big schemes, all too often thwarted by planning, um, as as referenced in your your Ravenscraig, uh, the rail project uh, that's happening. I mean, what what could be improved in the planning system to unlock a city's growth potential. I mean, I mean, again, we may just scratch the surface of this one. I was going to yeah. say that is the
2: great <laughs> enigma of property development, isn't it? What can we do to planning? Um, I think there have been so many attempts, I think, across the UK to rewrite the rule book, and every single time we get new rules coming out, they just seem to be slightly more complicated and um, unable to be able to find your path through them. I, I, I think it's all down to the way in which there is a perception of anti-development rather than being a positive thing, it seems to be something which we want to avoid at all costs unless we can demonstrate that the benefits outweigh the negatives. Where I think it I think we need to look at it differently. We only grow as a nation, we only regenerate our cities if planning supports that effort. And I'm sure a lot of planners would say but they do. But there just needs to be far more dialogue in a far more constructive way than a no you can't do that. Why? Just because, which seems to be the answer to a lot of things.
1: Yeah, I think it's. I think it's easy to uh, to bash to bash planning system and to bash planners. Um, working with cities all across the UK, we find it easiest to work for those cities who've got a really clear view on what they want to achieve. Um, and if there's a really clear ten-year, twenty-year, thirty-year development plan, uh, in general terms then it's easy for us, easy for, for, for other uh, people bringing people into the city to fit into that well-known plan. And that just makes it that much easier to achieve planning, I think. So um, th- there is a variety of different approaches. And perhaps that's down to leadership and perhaps that's down to happenstance. But where you've got clear leadership and a clear vision, planning seems to be less of an issue.
3: I think uh, Stephen's nailed it. You, you need a visioning document, but it's not just a narrative. It, it can be um, executed and implemented. So it needs to be achievable. There's no point in creating a document that's never going to be achieved, and I think that that, and, and I agree. But the other thing, and I agree with Barry's observation, developers making development profit it's not a dirty concept. It, it, it demonstrates success, and it means means that other developers will come and follow, and and actually co-invest and have confidence. So it's not about bashing the planners, but one has to celebrate the fact that there is a UK planning law. It's not unique to each city, but the, the speed at which that can be implemented in a responsible fashion will help the cities evolve. Um, but I do know, I do believe there are certain cities who almost have this. Um, stigmatism that, oh, a horrible developer is making profit and, and we don't want to grant planning, well, that's not gonna be a long-term strategy that's gonna be successful.
0: Yeah, very interesting. And, um, and, and Michael, we've seen in your presentation, you know, how, how sports has underpinned <laughs> investment into the city, either to, uh, uh, you know, uh, take a, make of that what you will. But is there an element of cities needing to sort of find and play off of that sort of specialistic characteristic that sort of sets them apart from the rest?
3: I think um, every city has to have its own character. So cities have got cricket teams, they've got rugby league teams, they've got hockey teams... But sport is, um, is a great um, inclusive um, aspect of our whole community. It brings people together. So um, I get a bit um, blase about people <laughs> mentioning the two football teams in Manchester because there's a lot of other sporting um, communities and, and uh, initiatives, uh, including athletics. But I think it does help a city create its own personality and it's a strong characteristic. But every city should be itself and not try and copy another city.
1: No, I think that's really important, your point about character. Um, uh, and it goes back to what I was saying before about having a long-term plan. Uh, I also fit, fi- find it easier to work with those cities that know what they are and know what they want to be and how that's characterised. It might be characterised about you know, the music scene and the sporting scene in Manchester. It, it might be characterised by that. Um, I'm glad you didn't mention the rain. <laughs> um but it's it's part of understanding what we are uh, and when I speak to local authorities around the UK I'd say nine out of ten say exactly the same thing um and and very few are be, uh, differentiating themselves about this is what we are and we're slightly different to everybody else and we're proud of this and and if you come to invest here then we want you to buy into this and that's a that's an easy thing to get hold of and invest with um well if you're another city then you're in the lottery of who else is going to win an investment
2: you know, I, I would echo that as well i think the the danger is that we we're far too insular in the uk we're competing with each other but actually the cities are competing on a global stage and we can all be the same <laughs> there is the the individuality of the city but i think there also needs to be far more focus on what are we going to be really really good at Let's not be average at everything, focus on a particular sector, whether it be an adjunct of life sciences or, or new data or something that you can say, right, we're going to work with the universities, work with the people, work with the workforce and create a name and a brand that is associated with that thing but it's identifying what that thing is, I think, which is the big challenge, um, rather than trying to be, oh, we'll copy what they've done in that sector, we'll copy what they've done.
3: I think that's why the universities are so important, because actually universities do, they, they specialise and focus on, on different syllabuses, and we're, we've undertaken some research, and we're beginning to see different corporates gravitate to different cities, because of the quality of those universities. And if all the universities did the same syllabuses, it would be really bland and very boring, and the fact is it doesn't. And so what what the other guys have said this morning is absolutely right. They've got to be themselves and be proud of it and emphasise their their differentiating factor, not just be a clone.
0: Great. Well, I mean, with that, I think we have time to squeeze in some questions from the audience, if anyone would like to...
3: No, we we don't. (laughs)
1: There's one there. (laughs)
0: Uh, thanks, Pui. Um, so we have on stage a little bit later, Tim Nguyen, um, who's a manager director for Leveling Up. Sorry to use that the, those words at the Office for Investment. He was obviously uh, chief executive of MIDAS, um, very successful bringing um, a lot of investment into Manchester. What do you think um, he should take from that experience to bring across all of, all of our cities so that... Um, the level of investment that we saw going into Manchester to enable that uh, 20, 35 year journey, as you as you said, um, to happen everywhere around the, the UK?
3: I think uh, when you analyse the whole levelling up initiative and, and where money has, and grant money has been deployed, once again, I think some cities are very mature and don't need any help. They, they know the levers of power, local planning authority, their land holdings, and working in partnership. But I, I do think that a number of cities need a kickstart and, and need some assistance. And, but I think that similarly, it's incumbent, it comes down, the common theme of this discussion today is having a strong vision and a strong, pallet, uh, and a strong plan. And I think that if cities just expect to have the benefit of quote unquote leveling up grant, but they don't have a vision, they don't know where they're going to have money invest, I think it's, it's just gonna lose its way. I didn't want to talk about it this morning, but um, one of the seminal moments in, in Manchester's history was the impact of the IRA bomb. And, and, and the Mancunians have always made a positive out of a negative, so they came with a very strong visioning document to uh, Margaret Thatcher and Hazeltine, and, and Sir Richard Lees and Sir Howard Bernstein presented it in compelling fashion. They didn't feel sorry for themselves. They didn't want to just replace what was already there. They wanted to take it forward again. And I, And I think that cities have got to have They've got to help themselves by working with stakeholders, working with the local universities, working working with other other um, factions that make up that community, and actually create a plan that can be deliverable. There's no point in saying, "Oh, I wanted to achieve that and achieve this, and it's never going to happen." They've got to do baby steps, but, but they've got to help central government knowing why they would have confidence. It comes down to what Barry's saying in terms of devolution, metro metro mayors, whether they. Trust those local authorities, and I think that the wider UK community, where cities are challenged and finding it difficult, they need help. There should be, you know, a, a group of people that can come in and help them write their business plan. Otherwise, there'll be winners and losers.
1: So I'm a big, I'm a big fan of levelling up, um, but it does mean different things in different places. Um, uh, in, in places like uh, Manchester or Birmingham and Glasgow, which are already thriving cities. Uh, it's about reinforcing what works really well and building on a defined character, whether that is automotive and transport in Birmingham or digital in Manchester. Uh, there's something clear to build on and, and make make more than it was before. Other places um, uh, don't necessarily have that USP yet, but, ne- but need a kickstart. And I think a really good example of that is that... Um, the Darlington Economic Campus in in Darlington, uh, where we're bringing a thousand uh, pe- a thousand high quality jobs into into a city that doesn't have a lot of high quality jobs, and and that's on the one hand, first of all, proving that in all parts of the UK there's lots of talent, and that talent can make a difference, but but also helping with some central government funding that hopefully will attract. Local government funding that will attract private sector funding that will make a much bigger difference in somewhere like Darlington than it might do in an already thriving city like Glasgow.
0: Great. Any more questions? For any city, you have to have the workforce coming back post-COVID. So I think for um, Michael and Barry, for your cities, have they come back? And have you worked with the buildings to make the office more of an experience, which we are now seeing as not exceptional, but a basic for the workforce to come back to the cities?
3: Um, that's a, that is an interesting question because um, a lot of people are focused on the built form, so buildings, their carbon ESG credentials but it, it's um, people don't just come back to work within the envelope of a building it's now all about the place um, and it's about the public realm it's about the ease of getting into cities and when you get there do you have a pleasant experience um, and that's why the, the parks are important that's why the routes cycle cycle ways pedestrian ways are so important so are people coming back into the cities? Yes, because I, I have a view, it's a bit, bit political, but I think people are now, it's about diary management, and it's about how people interact with each other. So people are now, they're still working, but they're working um, by having uh, meals in the restaurant, they're going uh, yachting, they're going cycling, they're going um, um, playing ping pong. So it's all about the public realm the, the, the place and the space outside the built form. And that's getting people back, yeah. No, no, I would, I would definitely agree with
2: that. I think it's been it's been a challenge and I think I definitely noticed specifically in Glasgow that it took a long time for the footfall in the streets to get back to where it was pre-COVID, but it's now starting to get there. Bars and restaurants are starting to open again. that have been closed for years. We're starting to get that feel in the office. We've got really good attendance rates in, in our office, and a big part of that is we only moved in last year, so we were able to do something different with it. It wasn't just banks of desks for people to work. It's all about different sorts of space. There's a cafe in the ground floor. There's a park nearby. There's walking groups during the day. We engage with the local community. We go out. We're doing a sort of garden project for a local group. All of these things to get people to see that it's... It's not just about doing your job at work. It's about being part of the organization that you're in. And actually, people then start to enjoy it. And we try to make it all the little soft things that encourage people to come back lunches and drinks. And we've even got a pick and mix in our reception because sweets can bring you into the office. But simple little things like that, we realize, well, I don't want to sit at home. I you want to be engaged as well. Exactly. Right. Yeah, that's why I'm putting on a bit of timber. Uh, right. <laughs> But it, it's just all of those little things that make people want to get in their car, or train, the bus, get into the office, and have fun whilst you're there.
1: So, so we m- measure the um, utilisation of our buildings all across the UK, and um, uh, the way that people work has changed, and it is not going back. Uh, so, people come into the office less than they did before, uh, and that's particularly marked on a Friday. Uh, Friday and Mondays were always problem days but now Friday is a very quiet day and you can just tell that by walking around any major city on a Thursday night, people standing outside the bars, uh, which used to be a Friday. Uh, so, uh, so things have changed and, and that means that the uh, commercial office sector has to change too. Um, so um, frankly a little bit less space is required but that space has to be better. Uh, and a, a couple of um, uh, sayings that we use in the GPA, which I admit we've stolen from somewhere else, uh, is that we want our offices to be a, a magnet and not a mandate, uh, not to force people into work, but make it so they want to come in. I mean, we haven't tried the Woolies pick and mix trick, but maybe we should, <laughs> we should give that a go. Um, uh, but certainly, and I'm sure those of you who are envisaging UK um, public service space are probably thinking banks of desks absolutely not banks of desks. You don't get leaseman Plus certification if you're delivering banks of desks. We don't do that. Uh, and then the other thing uh, that, that, we, um, that, we, that we talk about, is, which is relevant to uh, experience of our customers, the people who use our spaces, uh, and also the, um, the amount of space that we need, uh, given how offices have been used, in that we're looking to deliver twice the experience in half the space.
0: Great. Well, let's wrap up on that note. Oh, unless we have... Do we have time for... No? No, we don't have time to squeeze in one more question. So, um, yeah, let's wrap up on that note. Um, And for more of the themes that we've talked about today, we'll be hosting a series of EG City Roundtables across the UK all year. So please do keep your eyes peeled. Check our website at eg.co.uk or speak to someone in our excellent uh, events team over there if you'd like to get involved. Um, But for now, please can I ask you all to join me in thanking our excellent panel. Thank you. Gracias.